Welcome to the Neurocontrol and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and today I'm joined by my guest co-host, Dr. John Barlow, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. John, how are you? Great. Happy to be here. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the Mayo Clinic, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, so today we have the supreme good fortune to be in the city of Munich, Germany, um, to be joined by Dr. Patrick Rice. Um, we're, um, we've we spent uh, two days um, with him in the operating room, and he's been a very gracious host and has shown us around Munich, and we've had a phenomenal visit. Um, so, uh, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Peter, John, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So we've um, we've we've learned a ton from you, and um, I wanted to start. You know, you've made a number of really important contributions to our literature on the arthroplasty side. Um, recently, I think some of the most interesting things have been about short stems and stem size. Um, we watched you um, do a stemless arthroplasty. I want you to talk for just a minute about your journey. You know, you trained with Jill, and you've journeyed kind of through stem lengths to where you are right now. Talk to us a little bit about that journey for you and what do you think ideally we look for when we look at the humeral fixation of the humeral component in shoulder arthroplasty? Thanks, Peter. So, um, yeah, I started in 2006 my residency in the shoulder department of the University of Heidelberg together with a guy called Markus Löw. Um, He published a lot about arthroplasty. And at this time, we started with classic standard length cemented stems for anatomic arthroplasty as well for um, reverse arthroplasty. And we did a lot of um, humeral head resurfacings at that time. The outcomes were not always good. And then there was some point like a transition going to um, uncemented stems and to shorter stems. So um, at this time, we worked pretty close with uh, the Tournier company and there was this transition from standard length stems to, to these uh, kind of short stems. And uh, we were pretty enthusiastic um, by Im- implanting them because, uh, you know, it was uh, much more easy without going for cementing of the stem. It uh, was time, uh, not so time consuming. And um, yeah, so it was, it was a great experience. But with the first generation of these short stems, we found a high rate of stress shielding. And also in some studies, we found loosening. And this is something that never happened with our classic cemented stems. And we published a series of, I think it was 600 cases or so in the JBJS American in 2014. And this never happened before. So there was some modifications done with porous coating and so on on these short stem devices. And then it became better. However, <coughs> we found that um, there's still a significant amount of stress shielding around these uh, short stem curved components. And this was something that uh, worried us. Also, it seems to be just a radiographic phenom- phenomenon However, it is there. And at the beginning of, for example, reverse shoulder arthroplasty, we also said for scapular notching, it's just a radiographic observation. But, you know, with more long-term follow-ups, we see that it also can become a clinical problem. So this is actually something that is not completely solved. However, for some um, short stems, we found, or we tried to define like a cut-off, how thick we should go with our um, uncemented stems in order to have a good stability and to avoid stress shielding. One of the questions I want to ask as a follow-up about that is about reverse. You know, we're in the United States kind of on the precipice of stemless reverse. You know, there are, there's obviously an IDE that's been done. There's other IDEs that are about to be started. It is expected within the next several years those will be on the market in the United States. You know, you're in a privileged position here in Europe of having had stemless reverse components on the market, but I notice you're not using them. So tell me, what, how does fixation differ for you for a reverse on the humeral component? Why is stemless maybe a good or a bad idea in that situation? 
So first we have a big and long experience actually since 15 years in uh, Europe and especially in Germany with um, with um, canal sparing um, anatomic replacements. So we are using these components since more than a decade and actually there's not a big problem at all even in older patients osteoporotic patients patients with necrosis i still use um, i use these kind of components um, and as i told you i don't even have a stem for anatomic arthroplasty in my clinic so that seems to be not a problem however uh, for reverse arthroplasty you know the, the the forces are completely different you have compression forces and so on and um, the reason why i am not using it it's actually but i'm completely you know it's just my opinion is that there's not the correct design for um, stemless uh, reverse arthroplasty on the market right now i'm sure that it will come and there will be one or two or several however um, with the components actually on the market i'm not really convinced to go um, to an um, stemless reverse arthroplasty Thoughts about advantages of of that uh, stemless and the anatomic perspective. You talked about stress shielding. I think there's some indication of some stress shielding under the stemless components too, but we've certainly seen in the United States some of these uh, large diameter short stems and then periprosthetic fractures and otherwise. Is that something you guys have seen with the expanded use of, of short stems? Yeah, I mean, I use these short stems for probably five years uh, in a high volume and... Um, you know, it's always a dilemma because on the one side, you don't want to have subsidence or loosening. And on the other hand, you don't want to have stress shielding. So, um, of course, um, if you're in doubt, usually you go for one size thicker, but this may lead to stress shielding uh, in the future. So our recommendation in one of our papers describing this uh, phenomenon was to go for a cemented technique. However, if you're used to do uncemented stems, it's hard for you to switch back to, to cement. So this is this kind of dilemma. Um, where I think a lot of surgeons are in between. And um, I would rather go for one size thicker than um, to have the risk for subsidence or loosening with a short stem. That's great. And then um, the other question that I wonder about is the other advantage of the long stems or conventional length stems is we could get the, the alignment perfect uh, with that. And then with the short stems, we saw some alignment issues. And I think we're seeing more of that with the stemless. Any thoughts about your personal tips or tricks to get the alignment um, and um, and height just right and i mean that's that's really um a good point and we also published the results of malalignment of uh, short stems and you know we are talking about the inclination on the glenoid side we are talking about neck shaft angles 155 135 but what we found interestingly is that um by malalignment, your neck shaft, angle, neck shaft angle may change completely. And and surprisingly, at exactly at the same time when we did this study together with uh, Gilles Walsh and I think it was George as well, um, the group with Alex Lederman and Philip Collet did exactly the same thing. And both papers were published more or less at the same time and we didn't know it actually. So, and what we found was um, that there's a huge variation up to 20 degrees in neck shaft angle um, that you can achieve by malalignment. So we are talking about, you know, 135, 155 or 145, but at the end you implant a component with 145 neck shaft angle and you end up with 165. Um, I mean, <laughs> this is something, this is uh, hard to explain. Um, so my tips and tricks, and there was a study going on in a cadaveric situation um, using longer brooches in order to, um, to have a good alignment. However, also this group found um, malalignment. 
So um, it's it's pretty hard. I think it's depending it's depending on the system you use. If it's a curved stem, if it's a straight uh, stem. Um, what I did when when I when I'm using a short stem, I try to be as central in the canal as possible. I look at my planning. I do almost of all of my cases 3D planning pre-op also for the humeral side, and I try to to respect what I've planned and I try to be as centric as as possible. So I go in with an with a long um, like a K wire, like a rod, metallic rod, in order to find the canal to have an idea about that, and I try to align this. That's great. And then one more, and then. Um Peter, um, you can ask some questions. I'm just so curious about a lot of these things. One of the things you talked about some was subsidence, and we used to think humeral loosening was almost non-existent in shoulder arthroplasty. Can you give us um, a sense? You looked at all these x-rays. Can humeral stems subside and then ingrow? Do you yeah. think that's something that can happen? And what are some tips to tell? Uh, we, we think of a stem that's moved as a stem that's loose, but can you give us tips and tricks to identify stems that have moved and ingrown versus stems that have just become loose? I mean, usually um, stems that become, that, that become loose, um, they, you see it in the x-rays because there's something around uh, the component, completely around it. Um, when we analyze this kind of subsidence in this uh, ascent flex prosthesis, which is an uh, onlay prosthesis from the tournier at uh, this time, um, what we saw was that the tray, the metallic tray that was perfectly onlay onto the humeral cut subsided after time. So we, it was pretty easy to detect if a component subsided. And this happened in more than 10% of cases, if I remember correctly. So, however, they were not loose. So they just subsided over time due to the compression forces. And then they found their stability and there was ingrowth. So there was no loosening. However, if there's loosening, the component will shift. If it's completely loosened, it will shift over time and lose its position. The last thing I want to chat with you about before we move on from arthroplasty is, you know, we, we watched you doing anatomic arthroplasty um, with obviously a beautiful result, you know, and one of the things that I thought you were very, very careful about was pressurization on the glenoid side. I know you've done some work in this area. Tell us about how you approach that. So, well, I mean, there are several um, factors for the longevity of our anatomic replacements. And I think if you look at the I would say some bad results from the past. Everything was mixed, you know, different kind of pathologies, uh, patients with rotator cuff tears, really B2 glenoids and so on. And maybe this is one of the reasons why um, we have so high loosening rates. Um, however, um, if I go for an anatomic replacement, I want to have a patient with a perfect cuff, with a perfect bone, um, then I decide to go for anatomic. And I think one crucial uh, step is, as you mentioned, Peter, um, to have the correct technique. We know from former studies, from former surgical techniques, they make a curatage of the glenoid walls. They took out all of the bone in order to have more cement in the, in the uh, glenoid walls and so on. Um, so this changed over time and I'm uh, trained in the University Clinic of Heidelberg, which has a big experience in uh, studies with uh, cementing techniques. And what we found is that um, by using a jet lavage um, is pretty beneficial to have a better cement penetration. And we uh, also uh, did a study on um, pressurization of our cement. So we designed a tool for pressurization of our cement into the glenoid bone. And you will have a very good uh, cement metal around your component if you do so. So I think there, there's not one big step you, you have to go to have a good result in the long term. There are several small steps to respect. And for me, it's clear. I, I always use a jet lavage. I always use a pressurization. Um, let the component harden if necessary. And yeah, just do a good job. 
You know, you, you've mentioned multiple times um, as we've been through how important the experience was that you had with Joe Walsh and um, you learned from him the latter day and how he could do this procedure in 25 minutes and it was always perfect. And then you've obviously published his long-term results, which are quite good. In your own practice, I know you've shifted now to kind of a a new idea, which we both watched and we both think is fascinating. And um, I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit about this new procedure. How are you doing it? What are the advantages potentially over our traditional techniques? And then um, what does the future hold for you in that regard? Yeah, as, is, as you mentioned, I, I trained uh, one year with, with Gilles Walsh in Lyon in France, and uh, we did tons of latages, and uh, I would say it's really one of my favorite shoulder surgeries. Um, so I still do most of my latages in the classic open technique like Dr. Walsh has shown me, uh, with two screws, very standard, subscap split, not taking down the subscap, just a split. Um, however, if you... Um, look in the results i mean the the results of the leon group are perfect they have in the 20 year um following following up paper where i'm a co-author uh, we examined all these patients and after 20 years the redislocation rate the true redislocation rate with popping out the head was three percent so this is a number that is hard to beat um, however there are some studies for example from philip moroda showing um, in ct scans after a while um, the subscap reacts, so especially at the inferior portion of the subscap, there may be some atrophy, there may be some fatty infiltration, and that's logic, because you, what you do with a, with a subscap split, you make a permanent split, so it will not heal, because when you rotate, when you move your arm, the conjoint tendon is always sliding through the subscap, so it's a permanent split, <coughs> and uh, the inferior part of the subscap may be affected. Um, and um, yeah, and if you look for other results from groups out, out uh, not not from France, not from Lyon, they reported some of them high uh, complication rates um, related to uh, implants, screws, and so on. So then the idea came up uh, based on Laurent Lafosse with atroscopic latage. I tried it. I was not always happy with my level of the split of the subscap. It was in my hands always too high, and uh, you need this uh, portal going through the pectoralis major muscle. Uh, you may be at risk to damage the nerve and the vessels. <clears throat> so then I was thinking about the technique. How can I improve it? Uh, w what could be a change to do it atroscopically without risk for the nerves and the, and the vessels and without splitting the subscap? So and this was when the idea came up of the so-called flipped latage. Um, I know, Peter, you called it the triage, which is also a cool name. Maybe we have to think about it to rename. <laughs> um, so my idea was just to go in a different way and actually i don't want to to convince anybody to do that because we just treated the eight case number eight on uh, last uh, thursday so it's just um, too early to to convince anybody to do that but i'm just trying it i'm carefully selecting patients and following patients and um, we will see if this is a technique that works pretty well out so what we do is um, we do not prepare the undersurface of the coracoid what I do, I prepare the superior surface of the coracoid. Um, we have a drill guide where we come from the posterior aspect of the scapula. So we're drilling from posterior to anterior. So by drilling, there's no risk for, for the nerves or the vessels in the front. Um, and after all the preparation has been done on the glenoid side, coracoid side, and so on, we make the osteotomy. And in this operation technique, you need to do, uh, you need, you need to do it with, um, with a saclage or with buttons. So um, actually, after we placed the cerclage, we prepared the bone, we made the osteotomy, um, then we don't go through the subscap with our bone graft, we just bring it above the subscap. So it's like a phosphory flop in high jumping, 
you, you use the superior surface of the coracoid and you just flip it over the subscapularis muscle, tendon, and then you bring um, your bone graft to the anterior part of the glenoid. And it's a little bit uh, weird at the beginning and it's hard to follow if you watch the, watch the video because the tip of the coracoid is now not at the inferior part of the glenoid, it is uh, in a standing position, so it's upwards. But the nice thing is that um, your conjoint tendon is now running above the subscapularis and you still respect the so-called sling effect. So it's, it is a bone block procedure that can be done pretty easily um, arthroscopically. Um, there's no risk for nerves or vessels. Um, you, you have an, uh, a bone graft procedure, you respect the sling effect, and you don't have to go through the subscap. So as I said, it's just the beginning. We have to work out the results. Um, we follow our patients carefully, and I will report on the results. The surgical technique is actually under submission in atroscopy techniques. That's really good. And one of the um, building controversies is the idea of screws versus independent buttons versus bone block cerclage. I know you've looked at that and you're using the bone block cerclage. Thoughts about advantages or disadvantages of each or is it really dealer's choice? I mean, if you look at the, at the studies um, biomechanically, uh, we did one that was published two weeks ago or so. Um, I mean, it's logic that two screws uh, uh, have the best stability in almost all of the biomechanical studies. So it's a very rigid system, um, but it does not mean that uh, that uh, buttons or cerclage does not heal. I don't think so. So uh, Pascal Boileau, for example, has shown that uh, by using buttons you have good healing rates and other groups as well. Um, so with the technique I just uh, described, um, it is pretty hard to use screws, but because if you want to come from the front um, you have no split in your subscap, so and you have the conjoint tendon in front uh, because you flipped it over. So um, it's pretty difficult or almost impossible uh, to use screws um, without damaging the conjoint tendon or the subscap. So this is the reason why we have to come from the back and why we have to use a cerclage. What I found in one of my first eight uh, cases, we had one failure. This was maybe related to incompliance of the patients, but maybe it was also a surgical problem, I don't know. Um, we had a cut through of our cerclage through the two drill holes and uh, so the, the bone block dislocated. So I revised this patient to an old classic open latage and he's doing very well. Um, and that's the reason why we changed from uh, the classic um, technique without any metal support but to using the cerclage with a supportive very small plate that supports uh, the strength of the construct underneath the coracoid. So it's a super interesting technique because it takes it takes so many of the advantages, I think, of advances in a made of traditional technique, drilling from the back, moving away maybe from rigid fixation to instead the suture cerclage, which I think is, you know, hopefully an improvement even over buttons. So I, I, I congratulate you on it, and I am very curious to see what the results will be, and um, we're glad to see that you're going to follow it, and then let us know if it works. Thanks. Don't congratulate me before it's, it's improved when it works. <laughs> we don't mean to curse you that way, yeah. Um. I do want to follow up that um, the listeners should know that we're here in Munich on Oktoberfest week and we have the traditional Lederhosen um, garb on and it's, a, it's just been an incredibly special visit for us, Patrick, and thanks for, thanks for bringing us. Yeah, I like your, I like your outfit, guys. <laughs> well, thanks again for um, doing this with us um, and we, uh, it's, it's just been a great visit. Um, we've enjoyed, obviously, everything we've learned from the operating and also the culture of, of Bavaria. And um, yeah, we we'll look forward to seeing what you will accomplish in the future. Thank you so much.